Hello, and welcome to Gifts of the Weird. I'm John, your host, and my guest this episode, Ian Stewart Sharp, likes to imagine he's descended from Guthrum, King of the East Angles, although DNA tests and a deep disdain for camping suggest otherwise. He is the author of two novels set in his alternate universe, The Vikingverse, an Old Norse phrase book titled Old Norse for Modern Times, numerous comics such as The Jotun War, and now a tabletop role-playing game, When the Wolf Comes. Ian, you have been a busy world builder. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. Yes, it is. This is great. And uh, I really enjoyed the Jotun War. And when you approached about When the Wolf Comes, I was like, I'm not sure if I'm really a good person for this because I don't play role-playing games. But looking over a lot of the material in the book, man, that is just some really uh, interesting and, and great character stuff. So and it's an extension of the Viking verse, so that's always kind of fun along with that. <laughs> exactly. It's 400 pages, 400 pages and almost four pounds of book. Uh, you can take it and bench press. It's got so much in it. That's great, as long as people don't use it as a doorstop, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it depends whether they take to it or not. But yes, it's what I what I really did was was get all of the great stuff that was going on in the Viking verse, the Jotun War that you mentioned, the novels, and um, we decided to transform it into a game, a tabletop role-playing game, very uh, similar to things like Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder that uh, some of your listeners might have heard of. Um, and uh, it's really the chance to play in that Norse universe, that alternate universe where the Vikings rule the sea and the stars. So that's uh, that's what I've been up to since we last spoke. For those of us listening who probably haven't heard of Vikingverse, and we'll refer them back to go check out um, episode 52, and I'll have links to that. Kind of give us a brief introduction to the Vikingverse and what inspired you to create it. So the Vikingverse is this alternate timeline where instead of the you know, the Vikings kind of giving up and losing the, the various historical battles um you know i'm actually reading uh, the the last viking rap right now about harold hardrada and how in 1066 he lost the battle of stamford bridge imagine he didn't and imagine that england remained a norse country you know well you you read from my bio at the beginning there you know for a lot of england was part of the dane law for uh, long periods of time and uh so imagine that that persisted. Imagine that Alfred the Great never sat on the throne of England. Imagine that uh, the the Normans, named after the Northmen, you imagine they didn't become Frankified. Uh, imagine that the siege of Constantinople or, or Miklagard, as the as the the Norse called it, imagine that turned out in favour of uh, the, the the Varangians, the Rus, um, the Eastern. Uh, branch of the Norse Empire. So imagine that all of those things changed in the Middle Ages and then that Christianity uh, didn't evolve in quite the same way as we have it today. The Norse eventually you know, take their pagan religions and, and beliefs in the Aesir and the Vanir and they supplant Christianity. And so the world evolves in a very different way. And so that's what the Viking verse is all about. It's about telling uh, uh, the tale of a pagan present. And you know, there's, a, there's a whole timeline attached whereby all of the events that 
that we know from the printing press to a man landing on the moon is just given that Norse spin. And that's why, you know, I think it's a great setting for people to gather around the tabletop and inhabit that role to unleash their inner Viking, so to speak. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I'm not completely a novice to role-playing games or RPGs. I did play Dungeons and Dragons back when it was first released in the 80s. And when I was in the military, that was something that um, we used to get around together and sometimes kill some time. So uh, and it is a lot of fun to do those kind of things. So this sounds like a really great way for folks into RPGs to be able to inhabit a whole new, a whole new exciting world uh, that uh, is kind of a popular right now. At least it has been in the last few years with Vikings and Almighty Johnsons and all those kinds of shows coming out. So that's really cool. I think one thing that's interesting is, you know, you're right there that D&D, you know, did blossom in the in the 80s, but it also had that kind of satanic feel to it. And if anyone's seen Stranger Things, you know, that captures that zeitgeist well, right? And, and Stranger Things actually partly led to this resurgence of role-playing and fascination with Dungeons & Dragons because it's got that nostalgic uh, element. And so over the past uh, few years, especially then with the pandemic, when people were, were stuck uh, and needed things to do, it became a kind of really good social glue. And certainly that's why I got back into it, because I had played as a kid, you know, many years ago back in the in the UK, but then took like a 20, 30 year hiatus. And it was when my kids needed something to stave off, uh, you know, the kind of panic and despair that came with, with COVID-19 you know, it became a great way to not gather around the table in this case, because you couldn't, but to get online with pals and keep a connection and tell a story and uh, keep everyone sane. So that was really the genesis of me taking those novels and comics you mentioned and turning it into a game. Um, And we've had great fun doing it since, just like the exuberant, you know, actors on Stranger Things rolling their dice and taking down Vecna. You know, we've done similar things, but within Norse mythology. Yeah, that sounds great. Give us a little bit about your background. How did you come into the interest of of Norse mythology and uh, learning the historical stuff? Because reading through that book, man, there is so much that you have packed into it. What an incredible volume just alone, even if you don't play the game, how fun it is to read that. So how did you come into the Norse mythology and getting into that historical stuff and and uh, and then bringing it into um, bringing these elements to the creating your own universe? So that's, uh, that's that a big question. Is, that is a big question. It's a saga of an answer. Um, but uh can we add yeah. it to the Eddas there? <laughs> yeah, sure, you can. Sure, sure, you can. That's the, in actual fact, I do, you know, one of the jokes I make, because I try and, you know, when we spoke last, we were talking about Old Norse for modern times. And one of the inspirations to all of this was to translate things like, you know, you shall not pass from Lord of the Rings that Gandalf says when the Balrog is there and he, he stamps his, his staff down on the ground. And translating that into Old Norse and putting that into the book was... Uh, it was one of the genesis of this. We, we did things like, you know, roll a dice 20, roll a strength saving, translated it into Old Norse. And that's, you mm. can listen to all of that. Um, we put all of that up for free on the Vikingverse website, vikingverse.com. Um, so I'm going I'm to piggyback off that comment because it's Tolkien who starts so much fantasy 
Mm -hmm. All of the Dungeon Dragon stuff, the the elves, the dwarves, the dragons. Tolkien popularized that and then led to this renaissance of fantasy and ultimately led to the Dungeon Dragons game. Yeah, what he did was he just cribbed all of his stuff from Norse mythology. So I'm treading a well-worn path here. Uh, Tolkien went in search of creating his own mythology, his own, own old English mythology. But he, you know, names like Gandalf are literally stolen from uh, Norse myth. The Balrog that I mentioned is arguably you know, stolen from one of Odin's names, uh, Bailai. And so you've got all of these um, great tropes, these great poems, these great stories that form the basis of what we know today as this kind of tabletop role-playing fantasy phenomenon. However, and this is the kind of bit where I wanted to approach it in a more authentic way, because I did start looking at the history of the Norse and the Allfather Paradox and Loki's Wager. Those two books are all about this retelling of, of pockets of history. So the, you know, the, the enslavement of ninth century Ireland, you know, things like that. The, the conquest of Miklagard, of Constantinople, you know, things like that. There's these little, these little short stories that comprise that retelling. But as I got into that history and I started to unpick it all and was digging into you know, literature and digging into you know, great books um, you know, to, to study the Viking mind, Neil Price brings to mind as one of the, the great books I was reading um, and his The Viking Way. But what I was learning from all of that is that these this culture, this Viking culture, wasn't just raiders and you know they didn't just turn up and rape and pillage. This was a vibrant culture full of poets, full of traders, full of shipbuilders, full of explorers. And they have this rich and deep mythology and belief system that feels almost a shame to have lost. Uh, and so, again, I started to dive into it. And then you look at elves. You look at what Tolkien did with elves. And everyone thinks, oh, well, they, you know, Tolkien must have known something here because he's created these these pointy-eared forest dwellers who are great with bows and and then he's come up with dwarves and they're so iconic and they're they're grumpy and they're short and they've got battle axes and they 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 mine the depths of the world for gold but when you look at the mythology and the and the remnants of stuff that we have um that's not what these creatures were at all you know the the dwarves the diverga were perhaps spirits of of the earth you know spirits of rock denizens of the underground certainly but nowhere where they described as short uh the elves the alpha were kind of demons of death akin to the aesir akin to the gods themselves and so tolkien did a great job in bringing these things to life but he he changed them along the way and perhaps he did so because Christianity changed them along the way. You know, in the thousand of years since people believed in uh, and rubbed shoulders with the, the spirits, the Alfar and the Deverga and the Jotnar, the, the giants of Norse myth, um, in those in that millennia since then, you know, they've they've changed and they've shrunk and they've become uh, lampooned. They've become marginalised. They've become 
like fairies at the bottom of the garden, where in actual fact they were just these these creatures, these spirits with a meaningful connection to the land. And so you asked how I got into this, what inspired me. One of the reasons I did the RPG is because I wanted to not just let people be an elf like Elrond uh, running around with a bow. I wanted to give people a new spin on these fantasy tropes and take them back to their roots. And that's what I hope I've done with the game. That, that sounds really interesting that, that brought all of you to this, this whole world building aspect of things. So how did you determine the types of characters? And I don't know, do you like between the Alfar and the, and the Waynes and the. Yeah. I call them origins because. Origins. Uh, and origins in the because they really do just inform where you start off in the game. So yes, you know, again, a lot of this is drawn from Old Norse, and the the book kind of functions almost like a, an Old Norse phrasebook in itself. Because I do try and translate every monster, every spell, every every origin, every profession uh, into its Old Norse. So people can, of course, use the English if they prefer but if they want to be a bit more authentic you know then they can use the old norse that's that's in there so in terms of origins there are uh men there are alpha there are dverga there are jotna the there are the Janvidja, that which are the children of the ironwood there's there's 10 all together and what i've tried to do is is take what the original uh, scraps of legend say about them and then bring them up to date. Because after all, this is a kind of almost sci-fi feeling book. It's set in this, mm-hmm. pagan, set in this pagan present. And so, you know, the, the Dvergar, the dwarves, are still creatures of rock and soil, but they're, you know, they're equivalent to robots. You know, they're, they're, they're bound in polymers and ironwood and their thralls to mankind you know they have a truncated lifespan of five years as opposed to a short size because they can come in you know kind of giant mech war robot flavor or or thrall so there's a there's a there's a there's a spectrum of things to play and the reason i use the word origin is because as you progress through the game, and people who've played will be familiar with how you level up, you start at your level zero and you you play the game until you become uh, increasingly more powerful. In this case, there's ways to augment your characters, just as happens in the books. So the Jotnar, for example, can uh, splice themselves with animal DNA and become all the more grotesque and gruesome or huge or if in the you know some of the Jotnar were uh, as beautiful and alluring as uh you know the snow so it's possible to just enhance your yourself as a Jotnar and if you're a Dvergar then you know similarly you might start off as a, a small serving droid but then by bolting bits on or reprogramming yourself um you can uh, reach the you know the mighty uh, powers of 10th level and uh, some of the mythic classes to again ways in which i've taken the mythology and kind of made it into a, a path and a character class that should resonate with fans of the genre yeah now see i'm really fascinated by the role playing or, or i'm sorry the world building aspect of this that you've been doing so this is really cool to get this information out that getting into your head and figure out how did you do this and what influenced you so that that's some really interesting things the uh, so one of the questions that i was wondering about or one of the things that came in as i was going through all this is 
when you have the origins and for the role-playing game, did you have this kind of in your head as you started creating the Viking verse back when you started writing your books and when you started delving in the comics? Or did this kind of help you like expand the universe even more, kind of like a big bane, <laughs> you know, yeah. to to get this out and try to flesh out more of the things there or bring these kernels of ideas that you had and like, ah, oh, now I have a way to actually put something behind them. Yeah, no, there was absolutely no method in the madness whatsoever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you crushed my idea here. I thought you had this all laid out. No, it was, uh, that would have been a happy circumstance. No, what, uh, I mean, the the one book led to another, which led to the, the comics. The comics were just a great way to bring things, bring the bring the words to life in a different medium. So the comics were an expansion. The, the game really did come about, like I said, because we were playing Dungeons and Dragons for the first time in many, many years um, with my kids during COVID. And, and it just thought, well, perhaps we should create a game. Now, I thought that writing a novel was equivalent to running a marathon. But writing a rule book and, and taking you know, all, of the, all of the bits from the novel and translating it into a game, well, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know, that's like an Iron Man challenge where you run 26 marathons in a, in a back-to-back because the books the books gave kind of fertile ground and for, you know, for sowing the sowing the seeds they gave me lots of ideas but the creating the game and, and defining was a whole new discipline because mm-hmm. for example in the in a in a novel I could describe you know an origin or, or, or like the alpha or the Divergo in a in a couple of sentences but they weren't ever the focal point of that or of the novels they were they were an aside they were the back um they were a part of uh you know the kind of poetry of writing you just put something there to uh entice people to to read more when you write it in a rule book you have to you have to list their characteristics you have to define where they came from exactly in a way that everyone can pick up understand and play with um mm. and uh, so yeah, it required a lot more, a lot more mining than searching through old Icelandic dictionaries to find the right words for spells. Researching, you know, the 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 kind of honor and shame system to try and make it as authentic as possible. You know, because the 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 Norse culture was was very much about uh, embracing the needs of society and if you didn't act in according with you know what your your family and your kindred needed then you, know, you could be outcast i had to learn about if you're going to pass a verdict on someone on a crime you know you need to be able to say what that is uh, so that a games master out there can, if he encounters that with his players, he can relay something authentic. So there were mm. so many things in a book you can kind of skate over because it, you know, it's not about it's not part of your story. But what a tabletop role playing rule book rule book is is a mechanism for everyone who buys it to tell their own story. And so you have to give them all of the pieces of the puzzle. And anything that you can, you know, you can imagine will be helpful uh, to help them do so. And that's why it's 400 pages. And that's why it's taken, you know, a year and a half to get ready. I can't imagine that you did that in a year and a half. That's that's pretty crazy. 
Yeah, in addition to, you know, day job, family, all of that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, That's even more incredible. Well, it, it is helped in the mechanic sense um, because I leveraged a system called uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord. Shadow of the Demon Lord is published uh, by a guy called uh, Rob Schwalb, um, Schwalb Entertainment. And Rob is an old hand. He's written all kinds of D&D games. He's written for games like Warhammer, um you know he's got a list as as long as your arm and in 2016 he kicks out his own game like i said it's uh shadow of the demon lord and it's a very dark uh visceral game where uh the demon lord of the title is coming back to wreak havoc and you're playing in apocalyptic uh, fantasy setting against you know, all of these creatures from the underworld so the mechanics were really useful and rob's done an amazing job in in creating a very easy on-ramp for people mm-hmm. one of the things about D is it can be a bit intimidating but shadow of the demon lord you know has got a rule set it's very very simple so i leveraged that so that took some of the sting out of it but you still have to build your world uh, on top of it and that's where you know the lion's share of the effort was but because it's published because it has that great foundation of uh, shadow of the demon lord then i was able to accelerate things a little bit and what was great was is like i said there's this kind of armageddon feel to uh, demon lord whereas ragnarok has always been a keeper of the books and a keeper of norse mythology um the fact that ragnarok keeps rolling around the the norns uh in control of everyone's fate and none shall outlive uh, the day they decree that uh, you're going to shuffle off this mortal coil so um you know ragnarok is part of my game in a big way it's all about you know if you're playing it you are uh, a norseman norsewoman or an alpha or wh- whatever and you are standing in the teeth of fate defying the norms and you know, trying to uh, unpick the perils of Ragnarok, which is unfurling around you. It doesn't quite unfurl in them, you know, with uh, you know fire giants and uh, that kind of thing, but it, it does take it all with a kind of more of a sci-fi spin as is, you know, common to the, the whole universe. And certainly that notion of Fenrir, the giant wolf that swallows Odin, that's really the reason why the book is called when the wolf because that's one of odin's key phrases key statements in gilfananing right which is where he says about the einhaja the the warriors that he's assembled all of those fallen heroes that have come to his side in valhall and he says they will seem too few when the wolf comes you know, and so that's where I got the title from, just that, that, that poetic, really resonant statement that Odin knows that he's assembling this, this legendary army, but it's still futile. It will still seem too few when the wolf comes. He cannot avoid his inevitable demise. And I love that uh, feeling yeah. and that, that, that facing down Ragnarok. Um, and that's what the game is really is all about and when we talk about unleashing your inner viking it's not necessarily you know going on piratical raids and uh, arming yourself with silver it's about these mythic battles in the face of gods and giants wow that that's really cool
Since I began Gifts with the Weird Podcast in 2016, I've used Zencaster for my recording needs. Now it's super easy to record a podcast with Zencaster. Log in using your browser and start recording a high quality podcast right away. Record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. Feel a sense of Zen? Knowing Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my gift code, Gifts of the Weird, and you'll get a 30% off for your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Now, we kind of talked about before starting the the aspect of you having to build this religion as well. How did it form? And um, I would really like to have you um, talk about that a little bit. And then how, when you were building that, what from what we can take from the sagas and, and the Eddas? And did you take anything from modern recreations of the practices? Or did you just kind of go off on your own, based with armed with the poetic Edda and go for it? So one of the things that really used to bug me playing games like D&D is uh, you'd, you'd have a cleric, you know, the priest, and he would be a priest of Thor or, or a priest of Helm or something. And it always struck me that's not how polytheism works. That's certainly not how the Norse pantheon worked. You didn't worship at the altar of Thor. You were... You, um, you were the, the full truy. You were, the, you were a god friend. You worshipped all of them. You, know, you called them into your life. You evoked them when you needed them. And the notion that you would be devoted to one in particular it was, was pretty rare. You, you do get the, no, the odd mention of a, you know, a priest of prayer in the, in the sagas. But generally, people were open to the whole pantheon as and when the need uh, arose so the the more the, the kind of single church idea and that approach to the one true god that then got forced on the norse um, and forced on many parts of the world as as uh, you know these these kind of crusading priests went round spreading Christianity at the point of a sword. Um, you know when they introduced him into the north, he just got absorbed into their pantheon as well. So people would be baptized and you know wear their white shirts and embrace the Christ, but you know then they would happily be worshiping Thor and you know looking at their hammer again the next day because it didn't occur to them that there was just one true God, there was just a bunch of spirits or deities or or higher powers that you evoked as the as the need required. So going back to that DD system where well, I'm a priest of thought, no, you well, that doesn't make sense. So what I've tried to do in the game here is really think about syncretic or or blended religions as you know, because that's what happens. That's what happens with religions. They evolve. Mm-hmm. They start off with you know, with a book, or they start off with a piece of wood, or or Yggdrasil, a great you know, a great tree, and a, and a holy grove, or they start with nature spirits, and you know, they accumulate other bits and pieces. I mean, arguably, you can go back as far as uh, Zoroaster and you know those religions of the Persians several thousand years ago, and their ideas of good and evil, and how that influenced the 
uh, you know, the, the more Abrahamic religions in of the Middle East, which then influences Christianity. And then when we do things like, uh, you know, we have uh, Christmas, well, you know, it may well be that the uh, the Norse king Harkon, you know, changed the date of Yule uh, to fit with the Christian calendar um, and blended it so as not to offend people that were in the process of you know changing their uh, religion or shifting across or adopting Christianity. He made it easier for them by creating these on ramps by keeping pagan festivals and just changing them slightly. So that's a long way of saying, you know, I've I, in the future that I've written about, you can still worship the Aesir, you can still you know have be a follower of Asatru, um, but um, it's not quite as straightforward as you know as you might think, and that's primarily because one of the key world-building pillars is that Yggdrasil is the pillar of the nine worlds, is a literal entity, an alien intelligence that has seeded the nine home worlds and is perhaps the, the progenitor to you know, life as we know it. And so if Yggdrasil is not just this kind of symbolic tree, but it's a, a real living entity then the nature of the gods, you know, traveling to its roots and, and meeting every day at the, the well of the Norns, uh, all of that stuff takes on a more kind of uh, very real presence. You know, if you can say that your god is real and that pretty much changes your outlook on religion. So that's that's one of the things that I've done with there and then also things like yeah there's so many commonalities between the vedic hinduism of india and the fertility gods of the vanir you know things if even things like uh, Ordumbla, the 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 cosmic cow so i like the idea that when the norse eventually conquer india in the same way as the british made india into the raj uh, the norse you know, eventually take over the subcontinent and the two religions the 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 vanic religion and the vedic religion kind of blend into this uh into this new form so i like that idea and then in the same way as that eastern western religions uh christianity broke apart with the great schism and that's why we've got eastern orthodoxy and roman catholicism i like the idea that the icir and the and the vanir would have a schism as well and break apart, and so those were the worship would diverge there. So I've just tried to take all of these various real world parallels and blend them with the myth to create a series of religions or beliefs that kind of ring true, and therefore are kind of in parallel to uh, you know modern versions of pagan faiths. Now <laughs> that's quite a lot. And I'm just looking at the the contents here, and I think it's chapter five where you probably go into that, the mythic paths. That looks like quite a lot of work you've done uh, just well, on yeah. that topic alone. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, 400 pages. So the mythic paths are a way in which you take your character to the, to the pinnacle of power. Okay. Um, and so, you know, so yes, some of the kind of the equivalents of, you know, arch priests or, or the papacy are kind of there. One of the things that I did was to take the, the three names of the Norns, right? So you've got Urtha, 
you've got Verdandi or Verthandi and the Skuld. And we could argue about them being, you know, past, present and future or, 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 you know, fate or, you know, belonging. You know, there's, there's many different nuances to them. But what I did with those names is I turned them into the equivalent of uh, priestly orders. Like the Franciscans, right? So you've, we we have we have all of these priestly orders or monastic orders, you know, the Jesuits, all of that kind of stuff that exist in our world. If you had a Norse religion, you know, they'd name it after the the things that are important to them. So having you know the 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 Eartha as an as a religious order that you know, pretty much you know, run the place as the midwives of uh, the emperor and the imperial family, as well as the kind of secret police, all rolled into one. You know, I just like that idea, taking the kind of notion of perhaps the Spanish Inquisition and Norsifying it. Mm. See, if this is where it gets. It's just kind of deep and endless. There's probably nothing that you could you could mention in world history or or you know religious history or linguistic history you know that i don't have some kind of answer for because the whole thing is to uh, take it and look at it all through this norse lens strip away all of that latinism all of that christianity the stuff that brings us to the world we have today and just twist it so that it's uh, you know it's uh, a cousin of 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 what we see interesting stuff and I'm sure you explore a lot of this um, in your books as well and probably books to come. Uh, let's get to playing the game. What are some of the mechanics of the game that are either similar to or a little bit different than other role-playing games? <laughs> I, touched, I touched a little bit upon honor and shame. So let's talk about that. Because you might remember from the days when you played D&D, there was this alignment wheel. You could be lawful good or chaotic evil yes. or true neutral and... And so that kind of tried, defined your behavior and your place in the world. So I thought that that was pretty nonsensical as well and something that was a bit of a barrier to entry. I mean, do you go into, you know, your local grocery store and say, I'm neutral good? Uh, you know, it's just, it's, just a, it's just a nonsense. It makes, makes no sense to anyone. But people do behave, you know, in, honorably uh, or shamefully, you know, and... Uh, I thought that that was an important mechanism to get in. So when you fight bravely, when you act charitably, when you defend your good name, um, all of those things are honourable. The Norse were all about finery and and magnificent, you know, gold inlaid weapons, and you know, and, and that kind of, you know, they have plenty of pomp and circumstance. So that wealth is part of it as well. How you present yourself, uh, and how you obey the the laws of the land. And so that's that's one key element. You're not you're not good. You're not evil, but you are honourable. You could in Norse society, you know, just kill someone. You could kill someone if they insulted you, and uh, as long as you owned up to it, as long as you admitted it, as long as you played, paid the blood price um, and uh, uh, handed over some kind of recompense to the, the family, then it was, it was fine. So there's different morality at play. So I didn't want to just have you know, good and evil as we know it. Um, 
you know, there is no heaven and hell because it's it's not Christianity. It's the it's the Norse. So that's one mechanic that's that's important. And then how else does it play? Well, it plays with dice, like um, you know, every other game. You're in an interactive environment where uh, your games master will describe a scene for you and. Um, you inhabit your character and you say what your character does. You know, it's called a role-playing game, so you inhabit that role. Um, you act honorably or you act shamefully. You, you bear those kind of uh, societal structures in mind as you make your decisions and you respond in a kind of improvised way. And when a decision needs to be made that isn't obvious, then you roll a dice and the dice determines whether you're successful or not. Now, these games can get bogged down in in the the dice rolling you know way too much so you just you have to use a bit of common sense you're really telling a story with four five six you know eight of you around the table you're all joining in to tell a story and the dice is a mechanism that uh, frees you up sometimes when there's dispute but if you're playing a big burly warrior and you want to charge a door and the door's not locked and you want to break it open then you're going to break it open. There's no point rolling a dice for it. If you're uh, you know, a, a weak, wise man who is uh, more learned and uh, in the runes, um, then perhaps you do need to roll because you know, you're not strong enough to break down the door. But it's, 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 it's all about getting around the table and telling a Norse saga you know, with these kind of mechanics like honor and shame and then you know dice rolling that that support your endeavors i think that's excellent that's a really cool way to approach the game because when when i used to play when i was a kid that's how i like to go it was not necessarily with the good and evil because that's all we had but you know we me and my friends we kind of just wanted to go on our own little adventure and we had fun doing that so that sounds like really cool uh, a grown-up way to do it <laughs> and still yeah. have some fun yeah, and it's it's uh, it's interesting because you know there's a couple of um, I don't know if they're technical terms, but their their approaches to to running a game. One is called the railroad, and as you can imagine, it's straight and it's got rails and you know guard guardrails, and you just follow the path. And then the other is the sandbox, and the sandbox is much more free and open and. Uh, um, you know, you get to play around and go where you like in the sandbox. It's uh, it's not a straight path, and so some games masters will, and some groups prefer and go from A to B to C, and others prefer this kind of freeform uh, where they can go anywhere. Now, for the poor games master, um, you know, it helps when things are running on rails. If you have to come up with a, a solution for every eventuality, it really does require leaps and feats of imagination on a, on an hourly basis. Um, but some groups, you know, like that. Some groups like to be able to do exactly what they want. The, the, it's, it's a fine line when you're telling a story as to how to get that balance right, because you don't want people to feel that they're in a straight jacket but you also don't want to give them entirely free will because you know that's how things get messed up right if you're if you're on an epic quest to i don't know one of the adventures that i've written is all about uh, hugin the moon and um you know odin's raven's thought and memory and what the story revolves around the fact that 
uh, they are stripped from him. So Odin is left to wander bereft, a bit like King Lear, you know, impotent and full of rage, losing his sanity because he's lost thought and memory, who are very much a part of him. The players uh, on in this particular saga are charged with, you know, retrieving thought and memory before they're used for nefarious means. If they just choose not to do that, but to you know, I don't know, go off to Lindisfarne and kill a monk or two, then they've kind of ruined all of the hours of planning and plotting that the Games Master have put in. So there's a there's a balance between giving them the right hooks that draw them in and lure them down the path that you want to, uh, as opposed to just, you know, not letting them breach any boundaries. One of the questions that I had while you were working on this is, how did, how did you test it? Your kids, um, friends? Um... How did that come about and working out the the kinks or the roadblocks or the, the gaps that you found in there? Uh, so that's just kind of some of the mechanic aspect of things that I'm kind of interested in. Um, how did that work out? Yeah, it's so again, because it's Shadow of the Demon Lord, the core mechanics have been worked out okay. years in advance with Rob. And, you know, Rob's a Rob's an, a, a pro. Uh, and if you buy Shadow of the Demon Lord, you'll see a picture on the front. He he. He had loads of people playing it, legions of playtesters. Uh, he's got a huge fan base and, and, and some real expertise. So that took a little bit of the risk out of it for me. But you know, that said, you know, we were still changing things around, notifying it, introducing new rules. So it did need to be played around my table with my gaming groups. And so that campaign I just talked about, the Thought and Memory Saga, we ran through that tested out all of the ideas, tested out the new spells, uh, the new approaches, some of the, the rule tweaks that I made. And the, the, the guys around my table, you know, routinely broke everything. Um, <laughs> it just, you know, there was, uh, there was one spell I introduced. It's a version of bibliomancy, which is, you know, you're looking, you're using a book to make divinations. Uh, you know, it has its old Norse ritual equivalent, um, but it's basically bibliomancy. And I had one follower of the path of the wise uh, who had you know, become uh, a warlock or a vardlock. Again, so many of the, the names of fantasy uh, tropes are similar to the, the old Norse. Berserker, thief, all of these are old Norse words, right? Anyway, so this, uh, this wise man was using his bibliomancy and it turned out he could use it to basically just walk through life. I'd, I'd given it you know, much more ease of use and accessibility than it warranted. And so he could basically divine anything that was going to happen and guarantee a yes or a no answer from me at the drop of a hat. And I had to, you know, the rule was I had to you know, be honest uh, and give him an authentic yes or no answer. And so that was a good example of how that um, kind of at least partly ruined one session. So, you know, you, but that's why you're playtesting, right? You're, you're playtesting to go back and fix things. Um, and, and so that's what we did. And it's, it's, in a sense, it's good to have broken stuff because then you can go and repair it. Yeah, well, better to break it in testing and then to, to go ahead and just send it out there, right? And then get all these emails like, this doesn't work. Yeah, and look, I mean, it, it, the amount of times I've written and rewritten this book, you know, I taught myself in design in the past you know, six months to make sure the layout was exactly how I wanted it. You go back on a 400-page book and God knows how many, how many words there are, and some of them are old Norse words, and there's 
you find spelling mistakes you know the hundredth time you've gone through it you still find a spelling mistake um so let alone the rules there's 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 it has definitely been a saga for the ages i had something that i was going to ask you about and it just kind of went out of my head but i'm sure it'll come back oh um um, what has the feedback been so far um yeah generally positive i mean there was one review that i like to quote from the rpg academy and they do a podcast and they gave it the first a plus review they've ever given anything to the best of of my knowledge congratulations Um, Thank you. Yeah. So that's, you know, I, I, I like to say, well, yeah, yeah thank you to the Academy. Um, <laughs> and funnily enough, one of the things I do every year for my gaming group is I give away Oscars, right? We do gaming Oscars for, you know, the, the best spell casting or the most heroic act, that kind of thing. It's not like best actor uh, or best supporting actor, but it's something within the confines of the game. And the funny thing is, is that the name Oscar can be translated very easily uh, in into Old Norse because it's just Askir, you know, is Godspear. Oscar means Godspear, and so uh, when you're watching the Oscars in a in a few weeks' time, you can just Norseify it, call it the Askirs, and uh, and give every award to the Norseman film, which uh, it is what it deserved. Yeah, so the, the the reviews have been um, positive. Bear in mind that the physical book still isn't in everyone's hands yet. Uh, I've got the only copy in front of me here that was being shipped out uh, for proofing purposes. All of the rest are on a boat somewhere between China and the US. They <laughs> they shipped they shipped about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and I'm really hoping that they aren't going through the Red Sea right now because it would be uh, an irony if uh, you know, my, my Viking flotilla was sunk by Houthi rebels. <laughs> yes, it would, wouldn't it? That would, be a cruel, that would be a cruel fate. And at such point, I would, uh, I would turn my back on the Norns and uh, possibly stick a finger up in their direction. Well, I, I think there's a lot of propitiation that needs to happen right about now then <laughs> to the <laughs> Norns. Yep, let's do a few, uh, a few sacrifices of goats or something. Uh, yeah, or or a lot of mead. I'm sure they'll be happy with that. That's that's very true, and that's it's actually that's one of my favourite stories. I was telling it to uh, my table the other day. The mead of poetry. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but you know when when Odin steals it uh, and uh, flies off in the form of an eagle, pursued by uh, Suttinger, the giant who he's stolen it from. Odin himself gets a tiny little bit scared, and while he vomits up most of the mead into the the uh, the, the vats that are provided him at Valhalla by the Aesir, uh, he does actually squirt a little bit from his rear end, which is known as the rhymester's share. So that little bit of the mead of poetry which turns out to be, you know, just like the little bit of little bit of bird who that is responsible for all of the crap poetry and the terrible reviews that have uh, come across, uh, you know, that anyone's path for the past thousand years. It's all uh, Odin and a little bit of bird poo. <laughs> That's a great way. Well, Ian, as we get ready to wrap this up, what are some future plans that you have for, expansions for the rpg if you're even at that point and you're just getting this off the ground or out of the printer and for the viking verse in general well at some point as far as the novels are concerned my wife won't want to hear this but i have to you know i have to finish the trilogy i stopped for this big uh, this big rule book behemoth but in terms of the game um yeah there are expansions written i did want to you know the first one that will be 
that came out already is, is just simply called Space Vikings, right? This is this is a game that, after all, enables you to travel the uh, Ganunga Gap, and you can uh, do so in Viking vessels. It would not be a a Viking game if there were not Drakkar involved, and because you know the, the nature of the setting, um, you know you can have fleet battles. So that is one that's out already, and then the next one that's in the hopper. Is, is Paths of Honour. You know, I was talking about Honour and Shame quite a lot, but one of the things that isn't in the original rulebook, although there's a lot of great classes and paths and you've talked about some of them there, there's some great kind of archetypes that were uh, missing or potentially missing. And I'm sure not that many people are going to be missing them. But for me, there was an opportunity. Things like uh, uh, a Glimmer King, you know, the master of wrestling, the Norse uh, traditions of of wrestling. I wanted to find uh, a path for that. I wanted to get uh, a professional ball player in there, the Norse, uh, the Icelandic sport of, of nackleiter. You know, so in a, in a modern setting, you might expect to be a soccer player or a you know, basketball player. But in this setting, you'd be uh, a Nackleiter player. So I wanted to get some of these these kind of archetypes in there that were really authentically uh, Norse. And and I've had a lot of fun just putting them in there. because. And the reason they're paths of honour is because these are the crazy Viking-style things. I mean, when everyone else is armed to the teeth with, with guns and grenades, you're going to be the guy who wants to try and wrestle people with your gleamer. You know, that's that's worthy of honour. That's worthy of that kind of, uh, you know, Viking bravery. So those are sort of some of the, the more esoteric but quintessentially Viking things that I wanted to add into the game, along with the, you know, the classic archetypes like the the berserker and uh, and the ranger and that kind of thing. And this is out of order because I didn't have it uh, in my prepared notes. And it came to me afterwards and throughout the, our entire conversation and then got carried away. But I don't want to leave without mentioning the art and the artists that you worked with to bring uh, these characters and this this world to life, not only in When the World Comes, but uh, it looks like they're the same ones that are you're working with in the Jotun War and the comics and other things. So kudos to them and... Um, any any was it hard working with them how did that come about did you give them an idea or did you say this is this is the origin you figured out <laughs> you know so there's a there's a group of artists there that we've we've had involved with us and so uh, dev Prevnak, um he did the jotun war some of his arts included in the main rule book but the main guy for the rule book is uh, gare Curti. Um, and he did an excellent job. Yeah, I mean, what you really have to try and do is convey to them in words, because Gare is in Argentina, right? So you're just sending emails backwards and forwards, or you're sending some sketches, or you're sending some you know, art you found that's a bit like it on the internet, and you want him to merge these two things together. Yeah, so you, you're really trying to come up with these concepts. And and it's hard for an artist to try and to try and grasp what's in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's clearly hard hard for for you to grasp the 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 things that are in my head. So, you know, it's it's just that because they're in my head. Trying to get them out onto the page and trying to describe them, and and you know, I think he's done amazing uh, justice to it. And that's the you know that's then the 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 challenge, right? Because now you see it, and you go, oh, that's. 
that's almost what I was after. And now I want to try and, you know, want to just do this and do this a little bit better. I think if I had a chance to um, work with someone of, of Dev or Gare's caliber and be face to face with them in a room and sketch things out and collaborate really like that, then it could be even better. But, you know, the, the, the art has got a lot of plaudits. It's just the nature of the artistic collaboration is, you know, is a distant one. And that was partly because of COVID as well and partly because, you know, just the, the nature of being an indie creator. I'd love to have a, a crack at it with local artists that I could speak to as well and see if we could ratchet it up to, uh, you know, it's already at a 10, but like Spinal Tap, let's see if we can turn it up to 11. Yeah. Well, I really enjoy the character designs that you have in the in the in the in the, the rule book, and uh, and of course I also like the artwork in uh, the Jotun War that I read, and uh, so a lot of great stuff here, and it really helps complement and helps kind of bring some visualization to the game as well and to the characters when we're reading about them. So yeah, kudos, great work. Thank you very much, and thank you for taking the time to ask me. Uh, all of those insightful and erudite questions this evening. Well, I appreciate that. Ian, thanks so much for being with us. Is there any last comments that you have before we um, we finalize? So only just uh, everyone keep an eye out. You know, Ragnarok is always around the corner. You never know what shape and form it's going to come in. But, uh, you know, ban down the hatches and the best way to survive Ragnarok is, uh, is to go find yourself uh, Yggdrasil and hide in Hodmin's Holt. Yeah. So everything is available on vikingverse.com or will be soon. Uh, as you said, the print books are on the way, so um, you can't order them or maybe you can pre-order them. But Yeah, um, you can pre-order them. Um, there's PDFs available for immediate download, but if you want your you want your chunk of Yggdrasil or 400 pages worth, then, um, then you can... Uh, yeah, you can put in a pre-order and uh, it will be in the US in March, I think, and shipping out shortly thereafter. Excellent. Ian, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Please have a look at the show notes for links to uh, support our guests and, well, notes. Podcasts available from Podbean, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and other podcast download providers. Feedback and reviews are greatly appreciated. Please follow me on Instagram at at weirdgifts1 and on Facebook at at giftsoftheweird. Email me at giftsoftheweird at gmail.com. That's weird with a Y. Thanks and have a great day.